You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to Greenlit, the Buffalo 8 podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Helderman, and each week we're going to dive into a different piece of content, film and television, and we're going to talk with some of the biggest names in front of and behind the camera as we dive deep into how they were financed, produced, developed, marketed, and the crazy stories behind how many of them got made. Welcome back to Greenlit. On today's episode, I'm chatting with truly a legendary producer named Mark Damon. Mark's been in this business six plus decades, which seems just crazy to say out loud, starting as an actor in Spaghetti Western movement in Italy, to helping build and define the international film distribution and sales business, and then winning Academy Awards and being nominated 10 plus times for pictures that he's been involved with over his long-ranging career. Picking just one project was really difficult because Mark's been involved in so many notable projects. But we chose three. Das Boat, Never Ending Story, as well as talking about the Academy Award winning Monster, starring Charlie Theron. The wide-ranging conversation brings us all the way through 2019, when Mark and I were fortunate enough to work together on a project called Last Full Measure. Last Full Measure was a really challenging project to close and to put together. The cast included Samuel L. Jackson, Christopher Plummer, Sebastian Stan, and it was an incredible war story. But if nothing else, Mark teaches us the importance of reinvention in this business, constant innovation, and a continual curiosity, even as he nears 90 years old. So without further ado, enjoy this conversation with someone I can truly look up to and call a friend and a mentor in this business, Mark Damon. Welcome back to Greenlit. On today's episode, we're chatting with Mark Damon. Mark, thanks for taking the time. Sure. Appreciate it. So we are coming off of working on a project with Mark called The Last Full Measure, which I'm sure we'll come full circle and get to. But Mark's had an incredible career with many different chapters. And I think today we want to talk about a few projects, which is a little bit different than normal. Uh, But I think, Mark, let's talk maybe a little bit about how Dust Boat was greenlit and how that ties into some of the other projects that we all know you know you from. Um, Das Boat, I think, of all the films I've produced, is among the top five, maybe among the top two, maybe number one. I think it's it's a brilliant film. Um, It was the first German-language film that was ever released in the U.S. in the German language was the first foreign film that was nominated for six different Oscars. As a matter of fact, that year it was 1983, and I woke up one morning, heard the Oscar nominees, and this German language film got six nominations. And in addition, an Italian language film 
got three nominations. So we had nine nominations that year. The Italian language film was Italian language because of La Traviata, mm-hmm. which became the most successful opera film ever released theatrically. It was um, directed by Franco Zeffirelli and um, Placido Domingo was the star. So we went in with nine nominations, which is something that a small independent company like ours, about 40 employees, uh, never quite had. And that year also, this, this company that I had introduced into the foreign sales business, Producer Sales Organization, PSO, that year in 1983, we did more business overseas than any single major studio. We did about $383 million box office for a private company. Incredible. Those are big numbers, even by today's numbers. Das Boot started in an interesting way. We got a call from somebody who said, there's a German language film. I said, not interested. He said, wait, wait, wait. It's a really good one. It's about a German submarine and all the um, survivors on that submarine. I said, yeah. I said, you mean World War II? Yeah. The story of German survivors? Yeah. I said, I don't think that's be interesting. I said, you should just look into it. So I said, okay. So I made a call to a man named Gunther Rohrbach of Bavaria Studios. And he invited us to see part of the film. And I went in there with my partner, John Hyde and Maggie. And we looked at the opening scene of the film. It was a scene that took place in a bar restaurant about all these German submarine men who were about to go off on a long trek. They were having a party. And seeing a hundred extras in there and watching, because I used to be an actor, so I look at all performances, and usually actors, you know, actors, um, extras are $30 a day, and all they do is look and smile or laugh, whatever they're told to. Each one of these extras had its own life, his, his own personality. As I watched this 10-minute scene, I was blown away by what this director, Wolfgang Peterson, um, was doing. So I asked to see some more scenes, and I said, wow, we want to handle this. I don't know how we're going to do it, we want to handle it. So we entered into an agreement, and I thought the best way to to raise money for the film, because even though it was practically finished shooting, uh, it nevertheless had big debt. And I said, okay, how am I gonna sell this film to the overseas marketplace? German language films just don't go. Hmm. So I um, decided what I would do was this. I would call the top distributor in each of the top 15 territories in the world and invite them to Munich before the Cannes Film Festival, because they all uh, travel from their countries to the Cannes Film Festival. I say, come to Munich first. I want to show you some scenes from a film, German language film, that we're about to handle. And I think you'll see this is something extraordinary, so I'm just inviting you. And I picked the top distributor in each territory. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Well, of course, other distributors heard about this and they called me furious that they weren't invited. So I eventually let another 
one from each territory, and then another one. And it ended up we had about 60 distributors come there and look at the footage of Das Boot. They all wanted to start to make offers on it. And I said, no, 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 let's wait till Cannes, just a week away. So that would build. By the time we got to Cannes, it was like taking orders. <laughs> we sold every single territory in the world, raised enough money to get the film finished, and then um, began to look for distribution in the U.S. I went to Colombia, and they said, well, it's too small for us, but what we can do is we can set up a distributor just for this film because they loved it. But of course, they didn't know how it was going to go with uh, American audiences. And they said, and also, we should present a dub version. And I said, God, dub versions, because I, I know I used to be an actor, and I used to dub my own films, and it was really hard. Dub versions never sound good. So I said to Sony, I said, give me another $150,000. I'll get you the best dub you've ever seen. You won't be able to tell it from <laughs> the real thing. And they said, yeah, but how are you going to do it? I said, I'm going to take all the actors, because all Germans at that time spoke English. I said, I'm going to take them and have them dub their own voices. And they said, well, yeah, but they'll have German accents. I said, they're Germans. <laughs> right. German accents, right? Um, so we did it, and we matched the, the words exactly to the mouth movements in the German language. We found English words that worked, and then we had the German actors come in and dub their, perform their German performance into English, and with their German accents, it was absolutely perfect. Um, I've seen articles calling it the most perfect dubbed film ever in the history of cinema. Uh, but the interesting thing was, is that when we opened in the U.S., we opened on 22 screens, the foreign language, original language version, and 200-some-odd screens, the dub version. And in the 22 screens, we did almost twice as much business as we did the dub version. Mm. Again, emphasizes how much Americans hate dubbed films. Right. At any rate, so the picture became the success that it had become and um, led to my next Wolfgang Peterson picture. Wolfgang was the director. Uh, we didn't win any Oscars that year, by the way. Mm. Win any Oscars until I came to Monster, which I, I know we're going to talk about a little bit later, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about Wolfgang Peterson because this was such an important part of my career. Um, about a year later, a producer named Bernd Eichinger, who was the head of Constantine Films, came to me and I'd known him for a while and he was sweating profusely and he said, I have a picture called The Never-Ending Story and I want you to help me finance it. I wasn't terribly interested because it was a a German story, well-known in Germany, but again, he wanted to do an English-language version of it. And I realized that if I didn't say yes, that he would go bankrupt. He just as much admitted that to me, that he was, he was $9 million into the picture, and that was all his company, Constantine, had. And he needed help, so we agreed to come up with another $8 million to make the picture. 
Um, I said, but we have to have artistic control as far as the English language version. Um, as far as the German language version, okay, but so we took the script, we rewrote the script. I had actually somebody from my company, PSO, who was a, um, an upcoming screenplay writer, and he and I worked on the dialogue together, and we, we took the German translation into English, which was awful, and we <laughs> went to um, the vernacular, if you will. And then they shot the picture. Um, it was difficult because I realized that if I didn't sell the entire world at a certain number, that we would be out quite a bit of money. So uh, I went to Warner Brothers and I made a deal with, with Terry Semler at the time and he picked up the a $9 million tab for the US. And what was interesting was once the picture came out, Terry for Warner Brothers kept certain territories and we sold the balance of the territories on Never Ending Story. And all the territories where we sold the film they did extraordinarily well and gave us overages. And all the territories where Warner Brothers distributed the film was, was, was a failure. What else is new with the studio? <clears throat> yeah, um, which, which, is, which underscores what I've always said. You get an independent distributor overseas who's putting his own money into a film, and he's going to fight a lot harder, and especially not just the key cities, but also all the provinces and so on, right. in order to make that picture happen because he's got his own money at stake. Whereas U.S. majors, they often have employees there who, you know, just interested in their paycheck and if they don't want to dispute whatever comes out of the U.S., whatever materials or assets, they just accept them as is instead of adapting them to their own country or their own language. <clears throat> but one of the most interesting things about the never-ending story is that when I came to see the finished film, I've been through all the rushes and the cuts and so on. But the finished film, finally, I went to Munich to see it. And Wolfgang showed it to me. And he said, what do you think of it? And I said, Wolfgang, I said, it won't work. It won't work in the U.S. He said, what? I said, no. I said, the music. He said, the music is by Klaus Doldinger. Klaus Doldinger did Das Boat, one of the greatest scores of all time. I said, yes, it was a great score and heavy. And I said, and it's heavy here, and this needs light music. And he got really pissed off at me. Um, and he said, so what do you want to do? I said, look, I have an idea. I remember having worked once with Peter Goober, and Peter told me, he said, you know, music is 80% of the success of a film. And I told Wolfgang, I said, look, I'm not going to change one frame of the film. It's going to be exactly the same. I just am going to change the score. And then what we'll do is this. We'll screen the film to test audiences with Doldinger's score, and I had chosen Georgia Marauder, and Marauder's score. And whichever one tests the best, but clearly the best, is what we'll go with. So I said, okay. I went home. I got Giorgio, who was an old friend of mine, and we used to speak Italian with each other all the time because I was, I'm fluent in Italian because I was an actor in Italy for many years. <clears throat> and I said, Georgia, I said, I need a score in three weeks. He said, I've got two other pictures I'm doing. I said, I don't care. You've got to do it for me. 
And he went and did it. And the song that he wrote, the Never Ending Story song, is one of the most successful <laughs> film songs of all time. Ever. The yeah. picture was, it was um, sung by uh, Limal. And when, I, when we tested the film with that score, we had something like 92% in the top two boxes. That's excellent, very good. And we tested it with, with Doldinger's score, the German score. We got 22% in the top two boxes. The same film. Can you imagine what a score will do for a film? So obviously we went with that score, except for Germany. Uh, Germany, Peterson insisted on keeping Doldinger's score. And since the picture was, since the, the book that it was based on, the, the never ending story was so famous in Germany, it still did okay. But the success around the world was due to a change in music, uh, which I, I love that story. I love that. Who, who was the, uh, so Warner did uh, domestic on that one as well, or who did the domestic release on that? No, Warner. Warner did. Got yeah. it. Got it. That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. And so that movie becomes a big hit and a big catalyst for you know, continuing to build, continuing to build your career and to build those businesses. Picture did over a hundred million dollars box office overseas. It's excellent. It's excellent. It's amazing. I don't know if, if this is a good time to segue. Um, you mentioned you know, having been an actor in Italy for a number of years. Um, I've known you for a number of years, and I've known that about you for a number of years, but in prepping for this discussion, I think I've learned more, much more about you. So you, and you're going to correct me where I'm wrong, I'm sure, you were an actor in Italy in the 60s in that La Dolce Vita group of actors you then transition into recognizing that there's an opportunity to import American or U.S. language films abroad and get into producing and distribution and sales. I'm sure I'm wrong somewhere along the lines, but you've always struck me as someone who has a foot on both sides of the creative and on the business side. And I think this is probably sort of the earliest formation or foundation of, of that way of thinking would love to hear it from you, know, from you directly on, on how, that, how that evolved. Well, fortunately, when I went to college, I, um, after I graduated, I went to, for my MBA, I don't know why, but I just figured no matter what happens in the future, it'll be good to have a degree in business administration. So I spent two years and got a degree, and that's what kind of um, helped me through after my acting years was over was that I basically was a businessman at heart. Uh, I didn't know that at the time. I spent 20 years as an actor. All I knew was acting. That was my life. Um, I was a serious New York stage actor. I studied acting with some of the greats, um, Sandy Meisner and Lee Strasberg. I even taught acting. And... Um, but my career in the States was just so-so. My, my publicity far exceeded my uh, career accomplishments. I'd done seven movies or so, and I uh, was very well known in all the fan magazines and so on, but I hadn't really, really become a star. And then I got a call from an Italian director named Lucchino Visconti, who saw me um, in a show called The Golden Globes, where I won 
uh, a Golden Globe for acting, a film called The Fall of the House of Usher that Roger Coleman directed. And he saw my picture and he invited me to Italy because he wanted to talk to me about starring in one of his films. So I went to Italy. Um, I did not end up doing that film, but I ended up doing a small picture and then I did another small picture. And then um, an Italian director came to me. He's one of Tarantino's favorites. His name was Sergio Corbucci. And he said, uh, I'd like you to do a Western. I said, well, um, I don't think I can. He said, why? I said, well, I don't ride horses. He says, <laughs> I said, well, well, why? Why do you want me? He said, well, you're American. <laughs> I'm not really tall enough because Western stars, they're six foot or more. I was about 5'10". I'm much shorter now. I'm 5'7". This is what years will do in this business. And uh, uh, he said, look, you're, I think you're right for the role. You look good. Uh, we want an American name. Learn to ride a horse. So I did. And everything I, I did, I tried to do the best of my abilities, also because I wanted all the stuntmen on set to respect me. So I had to I learned how to jump up on a horse and without putting my feet in the stirrups and I learned how to fight and do all those things that a leading man is supposed to do. <laughs> I was just thinking about one of the scenes uh, that I had done. At any rate, it, uh, not to get off the subject, uh, that film established me as a Western star in Italy and all over the world. It's called Johnny Oro and here was called Ringo and his Golden Pistols. And then I did another one called Johnny Yuma. And then I, Roger Corman, I remember, came once to Rome. He saw Johnny, my two Johnny posters all over town, Johnny Oro, Johnny Yuma. And I became the American Johnny. And suddenly I had a career in Westerns and sword and sandal pictures and action films. You know, I was, I was never really a big athlete, but I worked so hard at it to be good enough. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. To do the leads in these pictures. And so um, I became an action movie star despite all of my upbringing. Um, as an actor and, and in school and so on. So it was fine. I, you know, I didn't mind pulling out a pistol and killing 10 men with one bullet. This is fun stuff. <laughs> to be a hero is, is fun, as long as you don't take yourself too seriously. So what got me out of it and into agenting, uh, sales agenting and producing films was uh, the fact that too many Westerns had been done and they began to go out of style. And I then had become known as a Western star. They called me Capelloni, which means big Western hat. And um, there were fewer and fewer offers. Then I met Maggie, my wife, who you met. Um, I was absolutely enamored with her, wanted to marry her, and realized that in order to keep her in a style to which I knew she would want to be accustomed, I better do something serious. <laughs> shooting, so, shooting, ten, yeah. shooting 10 men with one bullet wasn't enough. <laughs> I started in 50 films, 
Um, and I quit. And I went to some of my producer friends in, in Rome, and I said, I want to do something else. They said, you, you sure? I said, yeah, I need to do something else. What do you suggest? And they gave me the name of an Italian distributor. And they said, look, just go see him. We don't know what it will lead to. Because I thought maybe I should produce films. And I actually did produce one with Roger Corman, where I met Maggie, my wife. Um, and so I went to this distributor with hat in hand. And I said, I'd, I'd like to work. I know everybody in America. I can help find you films. And they said, but, but you're Mark Damon, the movie star. I said, I want to work. I'd like to work with your company and learn about distribution. And they said, they thought, because I knew so many people in America that I could get them any film that they wanted. <laughs> they said, we'll pay you $1,000 a month. And I said, done. And for a couple of years, all I made was $1,000 a month. But I learned that business and I loved it. And people have often said to me, do you miss acting? I said, no, not at all. Um, once I changed into something else, I suddenly had my business hat on and my entrepreneur hat and acting was a thing of the past. I have never missed it. As a matter of fact, I, I once went back and did one role because the film that I was producing, they, they pleaded for me to play the father of Tim Roth in a couple of scenes in the film. <clears throat> and I did it. I hated it. What was the picture, Mark? It was called, um, it was originally called Liar, then it became Deceiver. Got it. Deceiver. Got it. Um, some so what was the year? I said, actually, it's the best role and my best performance ever, which I really hated them for, because in between takes, I would, I would go off and make calls and do business and close deals and come on and do a take again, and you know. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, wait, so, so what was the year, and, and I really want to come back to the Roger Corman piece, but what was the year that you sort of put down acting and now we're going into distribution full-time? Uh, 1975. And so what was going on? And uh, I know the, the, the landscape today is a completely different industry entirely, but what was going on at that moment in, in the business and what was exciting about, you know, like you've said, spending those first couple of years earning a thousand bucks a month, learning the business and getting the education on that side. What was going on then and how has that been valuable you know, going forward? Well, you have to understand the, the history of this foreign sales business. Um, before I came onto the scene and accomplished what I wanted to do, <clears throat> there were people like Erwin Shapiro and Walter Manley who would sell small pictures for a fixed sum, 5000 or $10,000 or whatever, and that was foreign sales business. There was no one who was handling bigger pictures and giving them to distributors um, in distribution where they would have to account and possibly pay overages and do things like, like the studios were doing. Um, and in the beginning, you know, I was just out there to, to find pictures for my company and then eventually sell them. Uh, and I remember, Again, I'm going to deviate just a bit because I think it's an interesting story. It's great. Uh, new bosses at the distribution company. Um, before we started in foreign sales, I was trying to acquire films for them. And they heard about a film called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that was shooting up in Washington. 
And I said, I can get that film for us. They said, why do you think so? I said, well, my best friend is Jack Nicholson. He's starring in the film. Mm. Jack and I used to room together. And so I flew to Washington, spent a couple of days on set, um, hung out with Jack. Remember old times when he was in Rome and trying to get work in Westerns like me? Mm. Um, Saul Zanz was the producer of the film. And I talked to Saul. I said, I want the film for my Italian distributors. And I said, look, it's my first job outside of acting. And I, I want to perform for them. So I want to get this film. And they all understood. So I went back figuring I got the film. We made an offer of $400,000 for it. <clears throat> I waited a week, didn't hear from him. Called Saul back. and said, Saul, uh, we have an offer to buy Italian rights to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest for $400,000. He said, you get back to me. You didn't. He said, yeah, I'm sorry, Mark. He said, I sold it to United Artists because they picked up four territories, France, Spain, Italy, and Germany. <clears throat> and I was horrified as, I had, as an employee. So that led to my contacting other distributors around Europe and saying, the way we got to do it is the way United Artists did it. Um, we have to buy pictures together. And that was, without going into too much detail, that was the beginning of my thinking about organizing foreign distributors, amalgamating them, putting them together, and competing with the studios for pictures. Mm -hmm. um, as I say, that was the beginning of it, and that became my entire goal for the next five, six, seven years. Everywhere I could talk about it, every speech that I could ever do at any college campus or wherever, I would be there to convince producers that this was the way to go. And it, mm -hmm. Didn't happen until mid 1980, no, 1982 or so, when I got my first big pictures. One of them was <clears throat> Once Upon a Time in America, <clears throat> which Sergio Leone did, I, because Sergio and I were good buddies, um, and I got the picture. And the other was um, was um, the King of Comedy. Mm. Marty's Those are the first two big A pictures that were handled by independent sales companies, um, which finally achieved what I've been trying to do for years, was convince people that this was the way to go. And I would say 1982 was really the start of the foreign sales business as we know it today. And so now it's 1982. So now you've you're no longer, obviously, you're not in, are you in Italy at that point or you're, you're now in? No, no, no. I, 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 I came back to the States in 77 and foreign producer sales organization in 79. And then, as I say, we finally came into our own in 1982. It's great. It's great. So fast forward me then, Mark, now to how you see the business today and some of the pictures you've done along the way. Monster, Lone Survivor, Two Guns, and then all the way through last year doing something like Last Full Measure. How much has, has the business changed and how many times has it changed from, like you said, the, the business and the, the model hitting its stride through those pictures and then up through current time? Those were a lot of questions. <laughs> you, 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 you can break them down and, and uh, let, let's just go back to from 1982 then take me through getting to the next set of big pictures um, you know, I know we want to talk about Monster I know we want to talk about Lone Survivor and Two Guns which 
that sort of brings us almost all the way up to last full measure. But however you want to thread the needle of those within the context of, again, how much the business was changing. Well, um, I had some success as a producer, which I attribute to the fact that I'd also been a writer and I'd directed films and I'd acted many films. And I was um, truly devoted to motion picture making. Um, and I was convinced that besides the fact that I was able to put together monies to get films made, that the producer's job is the most difficult job in the industry. There's no one like what a producer has to do, and I don't have to go over that with you because <clears throat> most of your listeners will understand um, how complicated it is to get a film made and properly distributed and made well, for that matter. Uh, you talked about Monster. Um, Monster was the film that won me my first Oscar. I'd been nominated maybe 15 times before that. But it was my job as a producer of the picture to make it come out to be the success that it finally became. Mm -hmm. It was one of the most um, well-critiqued films in that decade. And it was because we all took such cares. Um, Charlize, particularly, Patty Jenkins, the director, myself, the editor, we would sit in the cutting room, and I would go there every day after work and sit there and make certain that we had to we, we were walking a very fine line. I had to make certain that we never went to the right or to the left of it. That fine line was to make certain that Monster was about um, Aileen Warnos, a serial killer. Uh, and I said, that by identifying with her, that's fine, but not sympathize with her. The audience can never, ever feel that we are manipulating them to say it was okay what she did. And I said, miss it by 2% either way, and we've lost our audience, we've lost the film. And so this, I as a producer, was the job of sitting there and making certain that in the whole context, looking at the film, we understood the inner workings of a female serial killer never admired her for it. Uh, we never liked her for it. We had to understand, but not sympathize. Um, and in the end, that picture became the critical and, and, and um, also commercial success that became because it was so well-reviewed and, and because we, we towed that line. Uh, I'm saying this because I can think of many other instances where a producer has influenced the outcome of a film, but that's, that's one of the best examples. Also because uh, no distributor would pick the picture up. They all, it's, I went to every studio and every independent, they all turned it down. And so I went to my guys at my company, I said, let's put up money, let's put up the picture ourselves. 
And they said, no, why don't we just put it through all the festivals, you know, it'll get acclaim, we know it will, and then uh, somebody will pick it up. And so I said, no, I said, I said, we got to get it out this year. Everyone's talking about, about Charlize's performance now. And I said, I don't think she has anybody who is going to take it away from her. Mm. Wait, next year, there may be a dozen actresses and performances that come up that um, might beat her out. So I fought everybody on that. I fought, I fought Charlize's agent and manager and the director's agent and manager and so on. I finally insisted and I put up $3 million of my own money to put the picture out and to get it to qualify for the Oscars. And I remember we opened in four films on Christmas Day. Talk about counter-programming. Monster <laughs> yeah. Day, right? Um, and we had to do $20,000 per screen average. Or I would have lost the entire $3 million because we couldn't expand from there. It was all dependent. I mean, talk about, talk about scary. You put $3 million down and you're depending upon four theaters to make $20,000 per screen. You lost all your money. Well, it ended up that we did $35,000 per screen average. We expanded to 11 screens the following week, then to 200, then to 500, and eventually over 1,000 screens over a period of three months. And the picture did $35 million box office in the U.S. And since then, it's gone on to do about $200 million box office in total, in total receipts from all ancillaries. It's phenomenal. So you, so you never had any U.S. There was no U.S. distribution deal. You guys self-released that movie. We did. Um, Bob Burney, you've probably heard of. Yeah. Ran the show for us. Uh, we financed the whole thing. Then we eventually got others to come in and back us up on the P&A funding. But by then, the picture was off and running. What was the year, Mark? That was 19... Oh, sorry. It was 2005. How much, and this is a sort of segue, how different is the business now than 2005? I know we have fast forwarded now many years from 82 to 05. A huge amount obviously changed between those two. International and foreign sales becoming such a big part of how these movies get made. Distribution changing, but there's still a big theatrical business in 05. Now let's fast forward to something like Lone Survivor and getting that film made. The financing of Lone Survivor, and you mentioned two kinds as well, were dependent upon foreign sales. Uh, the two guns, we went out and we did $46 million in foreign sales, which basically almost covered the budget of that film. And on Lone Survivor, we couldn't do quite as well because most of the foreign distributors looked upon Lone Survivor as a jingoistic picture. I'd never even heard that expression until I did Lone Survivor, um, which means overly patriotic. And um, we did about $20 million in foreign sales. But again, Universal was distributing the picture theatrically. They were, they were covering, covering a big part of that budget. And so the, these two films were made because the foreign sales were, were substantial in each of them. Um, today, if I were selling those pictures, uh, if I could do half of those amounts, I would say it was great. And I'm not even sure that I could because we don't know what the theatrical box office is going to be looking like. Right. We don't know how long it's going to take. We don't know if the 
habits of people are going to change because they've been watching them from their home. They, um, will the theater-going experience be only for those big, big pictures that have to be seen on a big screen? Are all the other independent pictures going to just become what they call direct-to-video streaming? Um, it's the changes were already on the way, but the pandemic has has crystallized them, or crystallized the changes to making us face the fact that we might not have pictures that we can pre-sell any longer, depending upon its theatrical success. <laughs> I, I know many foreign buyers now who will buy pictures and say, "Okay, it's a relief." We know we're not going to lose PNA on it, so we'll just go directly to video. And then you have to have, of course, names. You have to have a reason for people overseas to want to go, even go see these pictures if they haven't been released theatrically. But I'm afraid that um, it's very much going in that direction. Hmm. So that which I kind of spearheaded back in the late 70s and early to mid 80s is a formula that will no longer work. And if you ask me what's going to happen tomorrow, I wish I knew. I've tried to stay ahead of the curve my entire career. Uh, the fact is we're all scratching our heads and, and talking to each other, but nobody has the answer yet. And of course, one of the reasons nobody has the answer is because we don't know what's going to happen with the pandemic. Right. Uh, is it right. over in two months? Or is it over in two years? Or will it always be with us? Uh, but I'd say... Eventually, things will sort itself out, but I, I don't know that it will ever be like what I started with back in the 70s through to just a couple of years ago. So on that point you make about always staying ahead of the curve in every part of your career, a year ago or so, you did a deal with Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment. Did you, did you think of that through the lens of staying ahead of the curve and thinking about where things go from here and how to, how to become part of a, a bigger infrastructure to be able to put films together in a different way and sell more films, sell the library. How did, how did you think about that deal? Well, um, the chairman of chicken soup for the soul was somebody who helped me put together financing for my first company PSO some 40 years ago. And uh, his name is Bill Rohana. And Bill wanted me to come back and to help him build up the motion picture divisions of his companies. So for me, it was ideal because it meant that I could spend more time putting pictures together and not tend to the detail, the day-to-day -day detail of a sales company, which they would basically absorb and keep our employees. So uh, we sold the company. I'm not an employee of the company, um, but I want to make it successful because, uh, first of all, it's a challenge. Hmm. And secondly, of course, the more successful it becomes, the more value my stock will have. And so, therefore, uh, I have another incentive to do it. It's not, not just purely um, philanthropy, if you will. It's your, it's your MBA talking. <laughs> yes. Um, I actually got my doctorate also. Got them all at UCLA. It's great. Never, I never call myself doctor because 
what kind of doctor would be selling pictures to overseas buyers. <laughs> right, right. I hear you. So um, let me throw the same question at you. You have been doing these podcasts for a while now. You chose people carefully. You've, and you hear every day because you're in the film finance business. What's going on? What people are thinking? What their solutions are? So let me throw it at you. What do you think? It's kind of interesting. It's interesting that you would ask that question. And for the, the people watching or listening to this, thinking that it could be, you know, somehow that Mark and I talked about this before, we didn't at all. Um, we actually haven't spoken in a few weeks, maybe even a month. But I think the, the reason it's interesting speaking with you as I give this answer is that you are, were, as you said, a spearhead of starting this movement of pre-selling content, right? The, the practice of arranging the sales before a movie goes into production and then someone finances against that. And that's a huge piece of our business here. What's been interesting is that we're now seeing studios or mini majors coming to us and saying, forget about banking, international territory by territory sales. We, the North American distributor, will cut a deal with an international sales person or group, but we'll put up a single piece of paper. We'll take worldwide rights if we're Lionsgate or we're AMC Networks. We'll take the world. That makes you, Bondit Media Capital, more comfortable and confident financing one piece of paper to make this movie and then they'll figure out the exploitation and the collections and the accounting with all of those territories because they themselves don't have visibility as to how that content or product is going to be made so we're seeing them selectively choose projects that six months ago we would have been at can being you know, being pitched by the international sales companies on some of the sales numbers they're putting together some of the gap risk they would want us to take but now it's being contacted directly by an executive here in uh, the U.S. saying, Here, here's a piece of paper for the entire world. We'll pay for the movie on delivery. And we, we, we want to remove that risk and that uncertainty. So I think we're seeing more worldwide buys. We're seeing, obviously, the supply chain for content temporarily impaired. And so buyers are realizing they need to be more aggressive in the short term. Uh, and they also realize that there are some significant question marks as to how content's going to be produced. Question marks like insurance, and completion bonds, and banks' ability to get back into the game. And so if you're relying on someone like us who can take a different level of risk, it's great if, if someone like a, you know, a Lionsgate comes in and takes the entire world on a, on a film. So that's been interesting. And again, it's serendipitous to, to, to talk about that on this, uh, on this podcast with all people being you, because it's almost like your model coming full circle back to the studios taking every territory again uh, in this moment of COVID-19 impacting this industry. Well, I understand that. And Chicken Soup for the Soul, my new company, is also doing that. We're, we're putting up paper for the entire world and maybe we'll sell it overseas and maybe we will tie it into some deal with with another studio or another outlet we don't know yet but the big question is and that financial part of it i understand clearly the big question is is there going to be a theatrical business mm. um are you going to be able to make pictures like 
two guns or a lone survivor. Lone survivor, by the way, I saw back into the top 10 of video after so many years. Just such a good film. And, of course, it was Memorial Day. But those pictures were made because foreign sales were still in its heyday. Mm -hmm. Will that kind of picture be able to be made today? And let's forget the Mark Wahlbergs because he was a big part of it. But if there's a lesser name, so you don't have, well, that's a picture I have to have because it's one of the biggest stars of the world. So what do you do with a film that has a lesser name that is not going to guarantee you a theatrical release around the world? And we don't even know what theatrical releases around the world mean today. So all those pictures in between, between the two and three million dollar little pictures, which you'll get your money back on video, to the big blockbuster pictures. What about all those pictures in the middle? How are they going to get made? Mm -hmm. I hear you. I mean, I think there's going to have to be some more government subsidies. And I know, you know obviously, the U.S. has never been uh, the, the driver of that. Yes, we have tax credits and tax rebate states. But you look at something like someone like Ingenious in the UK that had the ability to take just such a different level of risk with their investment into films because there were you know, government and tax benefits to them doing so. Does that you know, does that happen elsewhere? Um, you've been in this business a hell of a lot longer than I have, and I know you've seen 50 different places like, uh, I know there was a German film fund for a number of years and the Belgian tax shelter for a number of years. There, there likely will be something else like that, but there's still going to be a reduction in terms of the number of films that can be produced in that middle market. And I just think it becomes more and more and more challenging. Um, we see finance plans every day now that seem like they have 30 different counterparts for a $10 million movie. Uh, you've got a music deal, you've got a you know, deferment deal, a tax deal, and tax shelter deal coming from all these different parts of the world. And that's really hard as a financing company to get comfortable with. And to your point about you know, producers having the hardest job in the world, good luck trying to hold that whole thing together. It's, it's so darn hard. So I think, I think there has to be a soft money solution. But then I also think maybe that movie is a movie like Extraction, right? This new Hemsworth movie on, on Netflix that by all means, I mean, that's just a great theatrical level, feels like a Michael Mann movie that's on Netflix that it probably costs 40 to $50 million to make, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. And they just go right to Netflix with it. So I hear you. I mean, I'm curious. What do you think? How do you think those movies get made in the middle market? What, what, what you say, by the way, is so true. First of all, uh, regarding, regarding subsidies, mm. we've been, you know, I've I'm, I'm been one of the members of IFTA, which used to be AFMA. I was one of the founding members. And we've yep. been talking about this for years. How, how do we get the U.S. government, the U.S. film industry, to be subsidized the way they are in almost all foreign territories? Right. That's how, that's how international film is made, is because they depend upon the Germans. They have, you can pick up subsidies from four or five different, different territories, counties in Germany. Um, the Belgian tax shelter still exists. There are subsidies all over Italy, Spain, France, even UK to an extent, yep. but not here. So we have to make every American film by going overseas and 
putting it on virtual and pretending that it's the U.S., but actually we're shooting somewhere in Thailand. You're right. It's, it's, it's a whole new game, and, and once we get out of our homes and, and unquarantine ourselves, it might become a little more fun to do. But, yeah. Well, Mark, I know I'm, uh, I'm up on time here, and you've been very gracious with carving out the part of your afternoon. So really appreciate it. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to, to, to end with other than I just wanted to say thank you. And uh, you know, it's, it's obviously been a pleasure working with you and getting to know you over the years. And I just love the, the long stories about this business. It's so fascinating. I, I do have one thing to add. Uh, you helped me very much close what seemed to be an impossible deal on one of my favorite films, The Last Full Measure. <clears throat> um, went out theatrically and just on the verge of the pandemic starting, and so didn't do theatrically what we hoped it would, but it was such a good film. I continue to hope that in the ancillary marketplace it would shine, and indeed it has. We are tripling the estimates that were originally given us by Lionsgate for digital and the cable, DVD and the Blu-rays, um, triple their original estimates. So the picture is finally being appreciated. And since it is one of my favorite films right on the top, uh, I, I just wanted to thank you for all the help you gave me to help one of the most difficult deals come together and that picture happened. Yeah, no, I uh, I appreciate the, the the nice words. Uh, you've you've been in this business you know, since since the '60s. I've been in this business since 2010. I think we can probably both agree that's one of the hardest deals we've ever seen. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. I, I agree. But well, thank you again, Mark. Appreciate the time, and thank you for the great stories. Okay, man. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Greenlit, the Buffalo 8 podcast. For financing questions, feel free to contact us at Bondit Media Capital at info at bondit.us. For production, development, and distribution questions, feel free to contact us at Buffalo 8, info at buffalo8.com. We'd love to hear from you and hope you'll continue listening to the podcast episodes ahead.